Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carthing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Our podcasts are made possible in part by corporate sponsor, Store My Tumor. In this episode, we speak with Leona, breast cancer survivor and thriver, diagnosed at 38. We get into the real dialogue about who is in the driver's seat, making the recommendations for a lumpectomy or a mastectomy. Leona shares all of the details about what she wished she had known beforehand, what she would have researched, and she's sharing all of these tips with our community today to help empower all of us as we manage a breast cancer diagnosis. Welcome to the conversation. Noting that you are five years out, like so many people ask immediately, like, will it ever get better? Does it ever get easier? Am I ever going to like have a day where I'm not constantly thinking about cancer or recurrence? My name's Leona Hamrick. I'm, I guess the, what I identify with the most is my career. So I'm a PA by profession, physician assistant, and I graduated quite young. I was 21 when I graduated PA school. So that's Quite literally, all I've known my entire adult life is medicine. I practiced for many, many years, um, and then I went back to school. Back then, it was a bachelor's degree, which it isn't anymore. So I decided to go back to school for a master's and then immediately followed that with a doctorate in health science. So I had all of those degrees completed and was still working clinically and teaching at a couple of uh, fac- on faculty at a couple of universities and PA programs. And this was all pre-cancer. So I've had a a really significant medical background um, where I worked in internal medicine, OBGYN, women's health, those kind of fields. And did you always know you wanted to go into this type of career? It was kind of one of those, a boy made me do it moments. (laughs) I was was in my undergraduate, I was quite, I, I think I graduated high school at 17. So I was really, really young. I was a freshman in college and I wanted to study marine biology. And then I met this guy, and marine biology meant that I had to leave the state and go somewhere else. So, of course, I was highly motivated to not do that since there was a boy. So I'm like, well, what can I do? Oh, I'll do pre-med. And at the time, it was true pre-med because I didn't even know that PAs existed. PAs are a young career anyway. Now, not so much. And now there's the Internet. So a lot of people know what a physician assistant is. But back then, nobody had heard of it. And it was appealing to me. I'm like, oh, I can finish school in half the time. I can still practice medicine. I can have a family, which was my mindset, again, based on the boy. Understood. <laughs> in the moment. <laughs> so that's what I did. Um, so I was accepted into PA school at the age of 19, and that's why I graduated at 21. I didn't know it at the time, but I made some really good strategic decisions at a young age. Yes. So, so I, you know, I was good at practice, and I enjoyed practice, and my patients liked me. You know, I only switched practices a couple of times in Florida. And patients would follow me, um, which isn't as common as following a physician, but they would find me. They would Google my name or whatever it took, and they would come with me, which was great and pretty amazing. And again, I was kind of balancing practice with teaching because I I describe myself as Goldilocks. Neither of those were exactly the right fit. I was good at them, but it didn't feel like I was doing the right job. So I was feeling a little restless anyway and a little displaced. I'm a huge traveler. I, I suffer from wanderlust. I'm, I'm not house poor like a lot of people are in their 30s and 40s. I'm travel poor. All my free money goes on vacations. 
So I was planning this amazing trip. I was going to spend three weeks in South America, the Galapagos, Machu Picchu, the Amazon. It's going to be this fantastic vacation. I, you know, I don't, there would be a water leak at the house or, or one of my dogs would get sick. I, you know, it's been, again, five years ago, so I don't remember the details. But I remember thinking, I'm not supposed to go on this trip. Hmm. It's just not supposed to happen. And then I would kind of dismiss it and keep going with my life. And, and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So I can be very reflective now, and I couldn't have been in the moment. But reflecting back, I was physically sick, too. I was having a lot of stomach issues. Um, at the time, I may have just said I was really stressed out, but my body was absolutely screaming, and I was just totally ignoring it. You know, we get into the grind, and we're into our lives, and you know, so I was just ignoring all of that. And then one final thing happened with my job. I can't even remember, but I, I looked up, you know, to whatever that higher power might be that you would look up to. And I'm like, you know what? If you don't want me to take the trip, just give me a sign. Just tell me that I'm not supposed to go because I'm, I'm pretty headstrong. Mm-hmm. And I really like to travel and I didn't want to cancel my trip. Of course. And almost as soon as the words came out of my mouth, I get this call that our clinic is being closed down. I'm going to be out of a job. What? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's it. I throw in the towel. I'm not supposed to go. So I canceled my trip. And wow. it was devastating to me to cancel my trip. I, I wrote a really long blog about this. And this is all before I knew I had cancer. So I wrote everything up that... I just have to trust the universe and I have to trust my gut instinct and my gut says I shouldn't leave the country. And so that's kind of how that happened. About two days later, I'm at my house with my dogs in the swimming pool and I came in and just like anybody would do women with hair, you know, I raised my hands up over my head and I'm 38 at the time. So I'm too young to have had any screening mammograms. Breast cancer doesn't run in my family. There's no genetics. But when I raised my hands over my head, I had this swollen spot in my right armpit. And in just instinctively, I knew that shouldn't be there. And I was really, really concerned. It just, from the reflection in the mirror, I'm like, that shouldn't be there. That's bigger than the left side. And, you know, that's your armpit. That's not your breast. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. So in part, I'm sure it's my medical training. That, that led to the next few decisions because my first phone call was to schedule a mammogram. My second phone call was to my best friend who had had breast cancer stage one, grade three, almost a year before to the day. So then she's pushing me to go to a certain center for the mammogram. So then I changed the appointment because again, I'm, I'm, with my medical training, I'm, I'm allowed a little more freedom. And I'm like, you know what? I don't just want a mammogram. I want a mammogram and an ultrasound. I'm mm-hmm. young. I'm 38 years old. Exactly. So on Friday when I went in, we both could see this massive tumor wow. on the ultrasound. And I'm not, I can't read an ultrasound. That's not what I do by any means. But it was big. It was really clear. But we couldn't feel it. It was so deep against my chest wall and my right upper breast. So if you think about your breast as a clock, this would have been at almost 12. So really high and very, very deep against the muscle. And it was completely not palpable. Now, I learned later, it was about two, 2.8 centimeters in both directions. So we're talking, you know, pretty large you know, golf ball, maybe something like that. Pretty decent sized tumor, maybe not. Um, but a large mass that I couldn't feel at all. The, because it was so deep and back on the chest wall? Yep. So 
self-breast exams wouldn't have picked it up. I was too young to have a screening mammogram based on guidelines. Mm -hmm. I feel very fortunate that I saw something in my armpit. And almost instantly, I'm like, this is why I canceled my trip. Yes. It's so weird the way it all worked out. So again, that was a Friday. So I had to go in Monday for the biopsy. So I decided to not tell my parents. I'm an only child. I don't want to cause them stress. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's not what it is. Maybe it's still wrong. Mammograms are graded one to five. One's the best case scenario. Five's the worst case that it's likely cancer. Mine was considered a four. Mm. And I knew that. You know, so I spent the weekend pretty well knowing that I had cancer. So I went in for the biopsy. And when they tried to put the needle in for the biopsy, it was a male uh, radiologist. And his hand was shaking. He was having to push so hard to get into the area where this tumor was. Not a good sign. <laughs> oh my God, I Not imagine. what I wanted. No. So I left that appointment without confirmation, but knowing that it was indeed cancer. So I made the decision at that point to tell my mom because mm-hmm. I figured they, they should know. And they didn't live near me at the time. They were about four hours away in northern Florida. So all of that happened pretty fast because I was confirmed by the next day. And I, I think that, again, is because of the privilege of being a healthcare provider. Yes. Um, I think a patient would have waited, you know, until their next appointment. Um, but my name was down as one of the clinicians. So I had access to all of my records pretty easily. So at that point, I knew that it was confirmed cancer. So it's, I'm just about what, four or five months short of five, five years now. But according to them, even still, that swollen spot that I saw on my right axilla, my armpit, had nothing to do with it. Completely incidental. I kind of call BS. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I think it had to be somewhat related, but it's still there all this time later. If I lift my arms up, you know, with a tank top on or a bathing suit, you can see that my right armpit is significantly swollen compared to my left. Okay. But the biopsy was actually in what they saw in the mammogram, which was that large, large tumor that was in my right, right breast. Okay, so you get this confirmation that they've detected breast cancer on this tumor that's in your back wall. What, what happened next? I knew before I saw the surgeon what stage my tumor was because I understood how staging works. Um, so that kind of stuff is, is maybe not good, but... But it's essentially, it's a hurry up and wait. And I think that's kind of universal. I don't think that's just unique to me. Like, they, they rush you through this process to confirm in whatever way that is. You know, for me, it was a biopsy. And then it's like, okay, now we got to wait. Now we have to get your surgery. You know, like, it's just this, really? Mm-hmm. You know, now I know I have cancer in my body and I have to wait to see this surgeon. I have to wait to get pre-op I have to wait to that you know it's just all this wait 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 for me it was a little bit of a longer wait by my choice because again since my best friend had just went through this and she's also in the healthcare industry she had organized her team of surgeons so I was you know basing my recommendations on that to pull together the surgical oncologist that would remove my tumor and the plastic surgeon that would help make me look pretty again. Mm -hmm. And those two doctors, those two surgeons don't normally work together. So coordinating their schedules meant that after I knew I had cancer inside my body, I had about a five week wait before I could have it removed. Okay. 
So those five weeks are just potentially miserable. Yeah, I mean, the whirlwind, I'm sure that your mind is just going in all sorts of directions. You know, that you have this like thing inside of your body that we can't wait to get out of. And then was it easy for you to make the type of decision in terms of the type of surgery you had? Or was there some research that you did to figure out if you needed just um, a single mastectomy or a double mastectomy or kind of like the research that goes into all of the surgical options? At the time, I thought it was easy. I wish that I would have researched it more. So that's one thing that I'm I'm happy to share. I had breast implants that were quite old. So to me, I knew that, you know, breast implants usually don't make it more than 10 or 12 years. And mine were well older than that. And I'm like, well, I'll just do a bilateral mastectomy to to get the implants out, you know, because and I knew that it would be hard to match. But like when I went in to see the surgeon for the very first visit, he said, oh, you're going to do a lumpectomy. I'm like, no, I don't want a lumpectomy. I want a mastectomy and here's why. And my why was the implants. It wasn't fear of cancer returning. It was, you know, I'm going to end up having to have these removed at some point. So pragmatically, the right decision is to remove them now. Now, in high insight, I, I would have had to have a mastectomy because my cancer was far more advanced than anybody knew from any test. And I went on to have MRIs, PET scans, everything, and nothing picked it up until we actually did the surgery. So even had he convinced me to do a lumpectomy, it would not have worked. I would have had to have had at least one mastectomy because I actually had stage three cancer. So I had very advanced cancer. But during the surgery, yep, um, MRI missed it, PET scan missed it but it was in four lymph nodes um, and nothing, nothing caught that, which really made me angry. But, but anyway, he did convince me to do nipple and skin sparing surgery or the Angelina Jolie surgery, you know, cause my tumor was really, really high. Like I said, it was at 12 o'clock. So the tumor was nowhere near the nipple. And that's the reason that you have to have the nipple removed if it's within a certain distance, cause there's a risk that there could be cancer cells left behind. Mine wasn't. So mine was a relatively easy, just take out all the insides, leave the outsides, and then fill it back up again. Like, okay, let's do that. This is where I wish I would have done more research because in high inside, I wouldn't have done that surgery. Um, And maybe this is TMI, but I figure for a breast cancer audience, I I would like to share more details than less. Essentially, you know, nipples are something that that we can control. normally right you know like they they'll get hard if you're cold or you know they won't be hard that kind of thing but after you've had a mastectomy when everything on the inside's been cut out you can't control them anymore I pretty much just have these very showing nipples all the time which I don't want as a professional you know it's it's something that had I realized that would be a side effect I wouldn't have made this decision And I think I'm more self-conscious of it because I'm a cancer survivor, because mastectomies and reconstruction mess with you psychologically on the best of days, you know? Um, It's such a challenging surgery to lose that part of your female body. So that's something I wish I would have done more research on. My best friend, her tumor was very close to her nipple, so she just had a full mastectomy 
and then had tattoos by Vinny, the guy up north that's famous for the nipple tattoos, and her tattoos look amazing. So I always covet her fake nipples, I guess, her tattoos over mine, you know, because I think that's a better choice. Now, it's that grass is greener thing. I, I don't know. You know, but but it's taken me a long time to be comfortable with this body because it's not a body that reacts like a normal body's supposed to. You know, you just don't have any controls over a mastectomy. My my surgeon was at a um, center of excellence for breast care, so this is a um, one of the top centers in the United States that that is earmarked to receive additional finances for for research and you know, grant funding that sort of thing. So he's very 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 good surgeon, but he was so laissez faire. From the very first moment, the moment of, oh, just do a lumpectomy. And then when I changed my mind, he's like, oh, it's just like you're going to get new. It'll be new and improved. You're going to look better than you did before. And it was almost like he gave me a false sense of security of how amazing this would be. And then you, you've set the bar so high that anything that's not exactly that, what you've created in your, your mind, you're disappointed. You know, I've showed a lot of my friends have seen the way my reconstructions turned out and any female that's going through the diagnosis, I'll send pictures and mm-hmm. let them see. And everybody's like, Oh wow, they look really good. Leona. And I'm like, yeah, they look really good to you. Cause they're not on your body. Like we have such, again, we're our own worst critics, right? On anything. We're always, Oh, I wish my arms were a little thinner. Oh, those bags under my eyes. Oh, my gray hair, whatever. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So when you know, you're going to have those same crit- critiques on post mastectomy breasts, because they're or, or boobs, as I call right. them, you know, fake boobs. They're yes. boobs, and they're they're never going to be what they were, and that's okay. But I think women need to reflect on that when they're making their decision. Exactly, and it's a process too. I don't think you wake up one morning just saying, "Okay, I'm comfortable with this now." I think it's right. definitely like I, I feel that way too. So I've had a full auxiliary node dissection, and because of that, I've started getting um, treated for very mild lymphedema. And, you know, I'll be going to work thinking life is great. And I put on my blazer and I'm like, oh my God, like, why is my left side so like sticky and doesn't fit in my jacket anymore? And, you know, it's not even visible to like, you know, colleagues or friends, but I know I'm like stuck. And I'm like, this is just, again, one more reminder that like I had to go through this and it's, it's frustrating and I'm trying very hard. You never want to go down those rabbit holes when it's like sunny and beautiful and you're just trying to live your day-to-day life and manage work and everything. And then, you know, you're getting dressed. And I know we were talking a little bit about like body image and just, you don't know when these things sneak up on you. So I think it's really important also to let our listeners know, like, this is normal and, you know, it's, it happens and it's challenging and it's frustrating, but it's, it's okay also, I think, to always have this in the back of your mind. For me personally, and this is also written in my blog, so this was written in real time when I was in the thick of it, you know, and going through chemo. And so that's just to, so I had a bilateral mastectomy, which meant I had to have chemo because I had, you know, grade three cancer. So that was adriamycin followed by uh, taxol and whatever, cytoxin, I think. It's been a long time. I should have had radiation. Yeah, exactly. Um, I refused radiation. That was my personal choice. I'm not trying to influence anybody's opinion, but based on my understanding of science and my background, I, that was my decision. But then I did opt for a complete hysterectomy with 
my ovaries removed. So it was at that point I was 41 years old and I was estrogen and progesterone positive. So I, I just shut it all off. But anyway, that's just, but that was my personal journey. But the point that I wanted to make was even early, early, early on, within the first couple of days after my diagnosis, instead of mainly living in fear or living in anxiety or even, you know, after the mastectomy and looking in the mirror and not really recognizing who I saw, all those negative things that we've kind of focused on, there was so much gratitude. I had so much awareness of the moment. Cancer stopped me in my tracks in a good way. I think that I was so caught up in a grind and not my travel. My travel was fun, but work, work, work. And, you know, let's hit the next milestone and let's do the next amazing thing. And, you know, you've got all these degrees and you know, you're teaching and you're you see your patients. And it was just such a crazy hamster wheel that I wasn't living for the moment. And there was one distinct memory and it's in one of my blogs where I'd left a restaurant by myself, kind of my cheers. You know, I knew everybody there and I walked in and they were all wearing pink because I just found out I was diagnosed. It was a, a really warm welcoming at, at my little Cheers restaurant. And when I left, it was raining. So instead of like being upset or running to the car, or, God, I wish I had an umbrella, you know, any of those normal reactions, I just kind of stood there in the rain and was in the moment. And I was so grateful that I was alive and that people surrounded me with love and there was such a mindset that changed in me because of cancer and I would do it all over again, even the bad stuff, you know, even all this negativity because I have such a different outlook on my life now that cancer was a blessing for me. My mom kind of struggles to hear me say that because as a mother, it was very hard for her to watch her only daughter be so very sick, you know, for a year, but I'm grateful because I'm a, much different person. I'm a nicer person. I'm a more patient person. I certainly appreciate the small things. Now, the longer I get from my diagnosis, I forget that sometimes. So I appreciate opportunities to do things like this, Laura, because it, it helps me to remember that every moment is precious for all of us. You know, we can take this really terrible diagnosis and disease and see the silver lining in it. I feel the same way. I'm meeting through the podcast and the work that we're doing, just amazing women out there who are, you know, conquering life and kind of getting this renaissance of energy because of their diagnosis yeah. and yeah. perspective. And that, that's really beautiful. And that's something that like keeps me going every day. Yeah. We don't take things as seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, once you face your mortality, <laughs> <laughs> right? you know, the day-to-day -day isn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I went back to work after I finished all of my treatment at a startup company that ultimately closed down. So this was during one of the layoffs. And, mm -hmm. you know, I could tell that things weren't going really well. And the VP, the vice president, called me. And I could tell. He didn't say it. But he was calling to check my pulse. He was calling to see if I was okay. And I remember saying to him on the phone, and I was only about a year out of my diagnosis then. And I'm like, no offense, Clint. A year ago, I was fighting for my life. I am not going to lose sleep over a job. Right, right. It's not going to happen. I don't care. You know, yeah. there'll be other jobs. Because exactly. so, it just provides this really unique perspective that to me has been helpful. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful for it. Yeah, one of the things that you um, mentioned 
when we were talking and exchanging some emails were the importance of being like your own self advocate. And yeah. I hear that a lot when talking to women. And one of the things that we try and do on the podcast and also on our website is provide education so people feel empowered when they're talking to their doctors, the list of FAQs and, you know, techniques of, you know, maybe bringing someone with you to the doctor's office because sure. it can be so overwhelming. So having a second set of ears is very helpful. I would love to hear, like, how do you define being your own self-advocate? I had a very interesting experience, actually, where I felt empowered. I was doing all of this research on breast density and um, dense tissue, and I was going in for a routine mammogram post-treatment. So this was, you know, maybe number two after after all the treatment. So I wasn't really worried. You know, I'm on all sorts of hormonal pills. I'm doing everything right. I'm like, they're not going to find cancer. It's going to be fine. Like, day to day. <laughs> and right. You know, with all this research too that I'm doing, I'm finding and conversations I'm having, there are so many modalities of um, screenings, whether it's the traditional mammography, the ultrasounds, 3D mammographies, MRIs, contrast, et cetera. There's so many options now. And I went in and I'm luckily in a state in Massachusetts where after they do the mammography, they gave me a letter confirming that like, you came back clear, but you also have dense tissue. And I was like, well, this is great. Thank you for acknowledging that piece. Um, I think I should have a more advanced screening technique. Like, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. And they were like, no, it's not called for. You're fine. And they told me I wasn't high risk. And I was right. like, how am I not high risk? I right. have how dense does that tissue work? and I have breast cancer. Like, right. <laughs> that, that's not high risk. And I was so, I was so empowered to talk about like what I knew about various techniques for screening, but then I got thrown off when they told me I wasn't high risk, that I almost froze and wanted to just like curl up and walk out and be like, wait, what? Scratch my head. Like, okay, I wasn't prepared for that answer. Um, yeah. So now I'm, you know, when I go back in for six months for another screening, like I'll be prepared to answer that statement. But, you know, I feel like we try to advocate and then depending on how the, the person that we're talking to responds to us, I think it's very easy to kind of just get back in your shell and say, okay, well, you must be right. Like, you know best. The the first thought, and in addition to all my medical stuff, I've always taught philosophy in a variety of settings, in prisons, in um, hmm. universities, in corporate. It's just kind of what I do for fun because you don't get really paid well to teach philosophy, but I try to live by it too. And one of the things that I've always lived by and always said to my patients long before I had cancer is you live in your body. Nobody can know it better than you. Mm. I mean, sure. I have the medical education and I'm going to tell you that Crestor is better for you than Lipitor for your cholesterol because of X, Y, and Z. That's my job. But I can't possibly know what's going on inside that body better than you can. So I think first and foremost, women need to remember that they truly are the expert on their body. It doesn't matter how many degrees somebody has, how smart they are, where they went to school. They don't live inside your body. They can't possibly know what you feel, what you know, what you think, what your gut is telling you. You have to trust that. I ignored that. I alluded to that early in my story that I had been sick for months. Right. I had been having all these stomach issues, and, and I should tell you that since my cancer was grade one, cancer had been growing inside my body for well over a year, well over a year, 
and it had went undiagnosed. And it wasn't that my body wasn't warning me. I was just ignoring it. So we can't do that. We have to trust our body. We have to pay attention. Even if we don't really know what it means, don't ignore it. That's the most important. Second is to find a healthcare provider, doctor, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, whatever, that will be a partner to you. Somebody that will actually listen to you. And a lot of times it needs to be somebody that thinks outside the box. Probably experienced what you experienced because we're trained, we meaning medical practitioners, in such an evidence-based model that if it's not in the guidelines, it can't possibly be true. If insurance won't pay for it, it can't possibly be good. If the most influential breast surgeon that I know in the United States doesn't talking about it, it can't possibly be good. You know, those kind of mindsets. And I, it's not good or bad. It just is the way healthcare is. Right. So mm -hmm. it's very important to find somebody that will entertain those other options with you. So if it does happen, what happened to you? And they say you're not high risk, which is just absurd after you've had breast cancer and you feel deflated. Maybe it's that you go home, reflect and say, okay, let me get another opinion. Right. And then maybe it is going to social groups to find other women that have had cancer that have good stories. Who did you see? Who will listen? Because a lot of this isn't covered. My mom had just sent me an article on a new screening technique with breast cancer. And, oh, Leona, this looks amazing. I'm like, it does. But most of the physicians are going to turn you down. They're going to say no because it's new. It's not going to be covered on insurance. It's gonna be, they don't understand it. So a lot of times, even when we do the research and we know what's going to be best, a traditional trained medical provider may not give you the answer you want to hear. Right. So it is important to, to interview. And if you don't like the first opinion, get a second, get a third. And that's not to say to not trust them. I, I'm not trying to give the impression that if you've been diagnosed and they tell you you need surgery, that you look until you find a surgeon that says, no, you'll be fine. You don't need to. Don't do that. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. But definitely trust your body. And, and if you feel that you weren't heard, you need to be heard. Exactly. And I feel like as women, too, we have such a great, um, great intuition that when we're meeting people for the first time, whether it's your oncologist, your primary care, your radiologist, surgeons, you know, you can tell pretty, pretty quickly if they're, they're in line with you. And mm -hmm. I think that's really important, too. I love the word that you use with like finding this partnership that's going to get you from point A to point B to point C or for however long you're in this, this active treatment phase. So yeah, that's really, really key, I believe. It's challenging. And all the other things you mentioned are so important, too. Having someone there with you. That, because for most women, it's, it's, there's so much information. It's just totally overwhelming, especially early on. Um, nurse navigators, a, a plug for nurse navigators. Uh, I'm actually going to their meeting in a few weeks. I think they're huge. If you can be affiliated with a hospital that has nurse navigators, they'll be your advocate. You know, they'll take the time to help and research. And because a lot of times the, the surgeons, the oncologists, you know, they're seeing 30, 40, 50 people a day. So it may not be that they're mean. They just don't have time to explore. And a nurse navigator will have time to explore. I think this leads nicely into how 
one does and focuses on self-care. I realized that when I was going through my breast cancer diagnosis, I, as much as I wanted to take the best care of myself, I think I fell more into the, um, I just got to get through this and I'm going to cope. So mm-hmm. if I had an appetite and I wanted to eat ice cream, like, sure, I'm hungry. I'm going to have ice cream. It's going to make me feel good in the immediate. Go for it. <laughs> or, you know, just some days I'm like, well, maybe I just need a fruit smoothie because I just came out of chemotherapy. And so I just want to get rid of these toxins. So I'm going to have something super healthy. So, you know, there was probably about a year where my diet was hit or miss. I tried to walk as much as possible, but with the fatigue, sometimes that was just a walk around the block. Other days I was hitting my 10,000 steps. So it really just depended on the day and how much energy I had and to come to terms with myself, with what it was I was able to do. And I just celebrated my two-year no evidence of disease cancerversary in April. Yay. Yay. I know I count from when I had my surgery. Like that was the day they scooped out uh-huh. the tumor. Yeah. And got rid of it. So it was two years. And I'm now still learning how to focus on self care. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not sure what your experience was with the chemotherapy, but I have gained probably about 30 pounds with all of the steroids and chemicals. And I am currently on um, letrozole, which is one of the aromatase inhibitors, plus a Lupron yeah. shot since I do still have um, my ovaries, but right now we're just suppressing all of them. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in my late 30s. I'm already through menopause. I'm losing body mass. I'm on risk for osteoporosis. I feel like I'm 80 years yeah. old. And here people are like, oh, but take care of yourself. <laughs> and I'm like, right. okay, let me try. And whether that's, you know, meditating, eating more salads, you know, doing doing what I can do and trying to not hold on to this image I had of myself two years ago. And yeah. that's definitely taken some time, but it's getting easier. I would love to hear any advice you have with regards to, you know, being five years out. Like, how does this self-care manifest in a cancer diagnosis? Yeah. Uh, to me, the self-care was much easier when it was new, Um for a variety of reasons, I think there's the fear factor of the C word makes mm-hmm. it a little easier to actively participate in self-care. You know, so I bought a, a really fancy burr grinder type juicer and I would juice every day. And now I'm like you, if, if I wanted, and I did on one occasion, I want deep dish pizza after my chemo. Well, I'm going to eat deep dish pizza, but in the morning I'm going to juice with mm-hmm. spinach and ginger and, you know, so trying to find that balance and I've done extensive research along with integrative medicine physicians on supplements that I should take um, things that I believe will help keep me alive and that's again more of my medicine training than patient training but I think that self-care gets harder as you get farther from the diagnosis like you said your you know your body isn't the same and your weight has changed with the aromatase inhibitors and the Lupron shots and mine too you know not from aromatase inhibitors but I had a full hysterectomy. Right. You know, so goodness, things definitely don't work this way. You know, mm-hmm. I'm much not much heavier, but to me I'm much heavier than I used to be. It's all relative, right? That sure. you know, buying new clothes and trying to learn how to like this body, that kind of stuff. But I think there's a few keys just that are universal. Moderation is always the key, right? Don't beat yourself up if you want the candy bar or you want the ice cream or you want the burger from you know, 
wherever, but don't do it every day. You know, try to lean more toward the healthy when you can. When you're in actual treatment, like you were talking about walking, it's trusting your body. If your body can't do it today, trust that it needs the rest. Be okay mm-hmm. with that. It's so hard, I think, for women because we're used to juggling. We're used to taking on the world. You know, we have kids, we have husbands, we have jobs, we have whatever. And we want to be able to do all of that. Well, sometimes you just got to slow down. Yes. And mm-hmm. if your body's telling you it needs to rest, there's a reason. Rest. Meditation is a really interesting concept to me and something else that I've taught for years. And I think the traditional idea of sitting with your legs crossed and om, and yeah, that's great for some people, but that isn't what meditation has to be. Mm-hmm. Meditation is anything that will allow all that thinking that's happening between your ears to kind of go away. I worked with a guy, and he's a guy, so what worked for him was cutting his grass. If he rode his riding lawnmower, he was immediately in the present moment and everything fell away. To him, that was meditation. My best friend, you know, we live in in Florida, in Tampa Bay, and she would run in Mm -hmm. August in the middle of the day. If I tried to run in August in Florida, you'd have to call 911. (laughs) That would certainly not be relaxing for me. Sure. But that helped Julie. That was her meditation. Anytime she faced a major decision and was totally stressed out, my only advice would be, Julie, go for a run. And she would call me back just every time and say, I know what to do. So meditation can be whatever works for us to bring us back to our happy place. Mm -hmm. So the takeaway for me with self-care is carve out 15 to 30 minutes once or twice a day, no matter what to do what brings you joy. It doesn't matter what that is. I have two standard poodles that are retired therapy dogs. Mm. I get so much joy from letting them swim in the pool. You know, they act like five-year-old kids. It's fun <laughs> for me. Yeah. Um, well, you know, beautiful. that. so you just have to find something that works. I did that when I was going through my school. I would just stop, take a break. Even if you don't think you have the time, make the time. Make the time. Yeah. I'm... I think that's the biggest key for self-care. Yes, I need to put that on a post-it note like right in front of my computer because especially in a world where we're living with so many competing priorities that you need to make yourself a priority. And it's not that, you know, why didn't I have time to go for my walk today or why didn't I have time to, you know, juice or do something healthy? And it was like the wrong mindset. It was like you do have time. You just chose not to. So choosing like – and if yeah. If I could share just one example that I think might resonate a lot with women, and they don't do it so much on planes anymore, but I'm going to bet that most of the listeners have flown on planes where during the safety speech, they used to say, if the cabin loses pressure, oxygen masks will drop. If you're traveling with small children, put your own mask on first. Mm -hmm. That was the way the spill went on the plane. To any mother... Almost to any woman, even if you don't have children, that sounds absurd. Why in the world would I take care of myself and leave my child there without oxygen? If the plane, the lights are coming on and off and we're dropping altitude and it's really scary, I want to protect my child. But if you think about it for just a minute, if you don't stop and take care of yourself first, put yourself first, you and your child could both die. 
But if you put your own mask on so that you can breathe, even if your child is passed out from a lack of oxygen, you can very quickly put that mask on them, and then you both might survive. Right. It is so important. We're not good to our families, to our jobs, to those that we love, if we don't take care of ourselves first. Exactly. So I really like that example. Mm-hmm. Because that's the, that's the rationale behind that when it never made sense to, to any mom. I'm, what? You're kidding me. I'm not going to take care of my kids. No, you have to take care of you. Yes. No, I love that. I'm going to definitely use that as an example as well. And the more I'm getting into blogging and the work that we're doing with survivingbreastcancer.org, it's the same thing where I want to yeah. promote this health and wellness holistic approach to care. And if I'm not leading by example then then what's the point so that's also been a great guiding framework of you know taking my own experience and seeing all the the benefits that are coming from that Mm -hmm. wow so we've covered so many topics um and in a brief amount of time to cover five years of history Um, (laughs) where are you today in in terms of treatment and health and career so and, and i'm like you i celebrate my surgery date. So my surgery was the day after my 39th birthday. So the perk of having a mastectomy the day after your birthday is that you start to age from the beginning. So I'm not turning 44 in October. I'm turning five, Mm. which rock. Yeah. So that's kind of a perk. You know, I'm getting younger instead of older like that a lot. Yeah. Um, so I, as I said, I, I refused the radiation. That was just a conscious decision for me. Um, I don't regret it. I think it was the right thing for me to do. I tried the aromatase inhibitors and, and didn't tolerate those well. So I'm on some alternative things that my medical oncologist and I agree are the next best substitute. And, and I've got other circumstances that kind of prevent me from taking some medications that are health related and work related. Um, But I feel good. You know, I do well. I'm down to seeing my oncologist every six months. And at my five year, it'll move to once a year. Oh, that's that's awesome. Oh, my gosh. A really nice feeling. Yeah. (laughs) To not have to do those appointments. Um, From a career perspective, when I was diagnosed, I made an extremely conscious decision to quit my practice. I had been very stressed, as I mentioned. I was down to three days a week in a clinic, but I was on faculty at these universities, and I'm like, you know what? I need to take care of me. And I'm a worst-case scenario kind of girl that that helps me. So in my mind, the worst-case scenario is that I would have to file bankruptcy for not having money. But Mm. I was okay with that as the worst case if it meant I could focus on my health. Now, I know that doesn't work for everyone, but for me, it worked. So I consciously left my practice so I could get through chemotherapy and when I was finishing up chemo I was starting to go on to LinkedIn to try to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up Mm -hmm. and I learned that there was this entire world in medical affairs but not as a salesperson as a science person as somebody that's an expert on the science to go out and communicate that to the people that are using the science the doctors the nurse practitioners the physician assistants So I'm like, that's what I want to do. So I I was able to score a job in cardiology, and I liked it, and I was good at it. That's the company that closed down. Mm -hmm. So when they closed, another cardiology job hired me by reputation, and I stayed there and liked it and was good at it, but it's not what I wanted. My passion is most certainly cancer because of my experience. Mm. And I was 
very grateful that I found an opportunity with a company called Lumicell that's actually in Boston. It's a startup. Again, I'm, I seem to like these startup companies. Yeah. But they're working in surgical oncology. So they're working on technology that is a, a drug that's injected prior to a lumpectomy, and then the surgeon performs the lumpectomy and uses a device that looks a lot like an ultrasound head. And if there's any cancer cells left behind, it could light it up, allowing the surgeon to get rid of it at the first surgery. So it's still in clinical trials. It's not approved. This isn't available yet for, for patient use outside of the trials. But I finally feel like all of my experience in medicine, in my education, and my personal journey with cancer has came together. Wow. <laughs> and I'm, I'm living my best life in a career where I really feel like I can make a difference. And that in itself is quite rewarding to me. I, I pinch myself about once a week, like, do I really work here? Do I really get to, and I, I would imagine you feel the same since you do this work now with surviving breast cancer that, wow, this is what I get to, like, it's, it's very rewarding to me. One question that I have and hear a lot from the community is, you know, we're both very open about our diagnosis, right? And, you know, mm -hmm. taking pride in our scars and our choices and giving hope to those who have been recently diagnosed. Do you have any experience with how that translates into finding a, a career when you're applying for jobs or, you know, future jobs? Um, this is something I personally struggle with. Like, you know, do I tell people about it? Do I not tell people about it? How there's a lot of, you know, ADA and protection in HR rights that protect us, which is wonderful. But I feel like that's still a part, especially for the newly diagnosed, that um, is still challenging to navigate. I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer. I think that's going to depend on a variety of reasons or a variety of things, including the person and the job. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to always be an open book. Like I remember the first time I applied for a job and saw that I could check cancer as part of the ADA. I almost got offended. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like what? I'm not checking that box. You know, like it, that was just my, cause I, I didn't realize that that meant, Oh really? I, you know, I'm protected. Like, what? Right. but when I went in for my first interview with Azertech, which was the company that closed down, I had just finished chemo. So I was still pretty bald. I mean, I'm, I might have had a tiny little bit of hair, but I certainly didn't look healthy. And I lost a ton of weight during chemo. I, I was, I looked like a chemo patient, sure. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I just had the hysterectomy, so I couldn't lift anything. I shouldn't have been going for an interview. Um, and, you know, these are all jobs that are out of state, so I had to fly. You know, I'd flown into Alabama and... I actually had to get a lady. I was hoping there'd be a man somewhere around to help me lift my luggage. And it was just a lady. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. Can you lift that? I just had surgery, you know, wow, so, yeah. but I was determined to go to the interview. But when my hiring manager came out, he had seen my LinkedIn picture, which showed this long, wavy black hair, which was pre-cancer, Leona. Mm -hmm. And he didn't recognize me. So it was almost like, I couldn't avoid the elephant in the middle of the room. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I had to just address it. Um, it was very hard for me, though, even being as open as I am. But it, and, and at, at my level, an interview is usually, at least in part, a panel where you've got all the senior leadership and you have to do a presentation. So sure. at that point of my interview, I had about 10 people in a room and I'm standing in front of a PowerPoint. And I just brought it up I don't even know how it just kind of came up because it seemed like the thing to do 
So then we had a 20-minute conversation about my health. And not not that they were questioning my ability. They were genuinely concerned. Or, you know, are you okay? How you doing? How you feeling? Right. And they offered me the job that night. Wow. Um, okay. So it was okay. But, you know, I don't know that I would have done it in a different situation. I think it depends. I think it I certainly disclosed it at, at Lumisil because mm-hmm. I thought it was very pertinent. This is a company that's working in breast cancer, and I'm a breast cancer patient. I want to work here. Right, exactly. Um, I don't think I disclosed it at the job in between. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. I don't think it mattered. I, I think I told people after the fact. Um, but I think women have to decide because I, I, you know, there can be that. There may be bosses that don't see it as a good thing and oh she's going to be sick and she's going to take time off for whatever their ideas might be um i think that's another one of those things like you were i'm sorry you were talking about women trusting their intuition when they need a surgeon it's almost trusting it when you go in for that interview is is this going to be a safe place or should i not talk about it exactly perhaps well i I just would say that that i'm more than happy to talk to anybody that's going through this i think it's it's unfortunate that our sisterhood is so huge. I know. But with one in eight women, this is a very large group, you know, and, and I would be more than willing to talk to anyone that's going through their experience. All of my blogs are still on the internet. You know, they were written in the moment when I was in the thick of things. That Excellent. And what's your website I'm again? I'm willing to share. It's Leona, Leona's, L-E-O-N-A-S, Leona's Cancer Adventure dot blogspot dot com. Awesome. Great. Well, I'm sure our listeners will definitely be looking that up, which is awesome. And I'll also put them in the notes in um, the description of the podcast, too. Thank you so much, Leona, for sharing your personal experience with a breast cancer diagnosis. And thank you, everyone, for listening to our show. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast are from personal experiences and are not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always contact your medical care team. 